not not what they used to be. So, but you were talking about um, psych evals, no psych evals. So, how did they? Was it just up to the case officer then, or just up to your handler? Yeah, to exactly. <clears throat> there was there was just really nobody else, and uh, there, there was not even a hint that I was uh, being intro- uh, tr- introduced to somebody who I could have who d- really didn't have any competency other than just talking to me. So there was nothing there. Well, so you're going, I mean, so you're obviously there's, there's a lot of reasons why you're, you're going, uh, using different, uh, covers and different trips to get into the United States. So kind of let everybody know, it sounds like, you know, spy versus spy. We're trying to catch people, but there's a, there's a fundamental reason too, why you're making all of these cutouts, all of these different trips. What was it? that was most important that you were trying to protect for your new cover identity, Jack Barsky, to get you into the country to where you didn't have this trail following you? The the, the, the reason, and again, I, I put this all together. N- nobody ever really explained reasons to me. And this was, uh, you know, they, they shared with me what they thought, the only, o- only the things that I should know to be uh, capably operational. And that, you know, because compartmentalization was uh, was huge in, in, in the KGB. But that was also counterproductive because when, as, when you operate as a lone wolf and you got to make your own decisions and you don't have a good foundation to, to make the right decision, you're going to make mistakes. This I pieced together in hindsight. Uh, for me to, uh, to uh, wind up in the, in the United States, Without possibly being traced back to Moscow, we went from Moscow to Belgrade, Yugoslavia. That was a communist country, but it was a little closer to the West. And then we went to, I went to a neutral country, Austria, Vienna. And then from there, we went to a NATO country, uh, Rome, Italy. And from there, we got closer to the United States, Mexico City. And from there, <clears throat> I, 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 I traveled to the United States with a Canadian passport, which in hindsight uh, was also very dangerous because one thing I knew that uh, Canadians don't speak <clears throat> like Americans. Hey. And I was taught to speak like an American. So I was really concerned that I, if I had had an interview with many questions and answers, they would have figured out this can't be a Canadian. Well, they would have asked you if you knowed what Putin was and who was the greatest hockey player ever at the time, you know. And uh... Well, I, I, that I actually knew, Guy Lafleur. <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, I was in the forum during my uh, Montre- Montreal stay. I was in the, in the forum when Guy Lafleur broke the record for most games um, uh, 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 scored in one season, home game, most goals in home games. So yeah, yeah, I would have known that, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I would have failed any kind of interview. Period. And what are you doing? What is this radio for? And wait a minute, you came from. What did you do in Mexico City? Uh, 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 tourism. Well, you 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 don't look like you spent any length of time in Mexico. I, I would have I would have been busted. You know, it, it was, and this is why I'm thinking a lot of my colleagues, and, and this, this is bona fide evidence came out of the KGB archives. Uh, in the late 70s to the mid 80s, they trained 10 of us 
nothing else is known about the 10 other than I know about myself and one other who, uh, who I met in Germany. But my guess is the failure rate was very high. Wow. So you would say your guess is, so the 10 is who ended up being successfully? Um, no, the, the 10 were trained. There's nothing else known about uh, what happened to them and whether they were launched and whether they failed or not. Uh, okay. That's not in the archive. So. Well, and that's what that, that led me to the question I wanted to ask you too. So by the time you actually were in Mexico City getting ready to come into the United States on a Canadian passport, how many years from the first time you got approached until you are now there at the border, how many years has it taken now to get you to this point? A little over five years. And see, that that's what I want people to understand is that when you have adversaries, um, you know, part of the intelligence game, right, is the – I think that's what one thing Russia did better in a lot of areas in the United States. It's the issue of patience. Yeah, the long game. We, we played the long game, and, and we know that the Chinese are playing a very long game. Very long game. So you're at the border um, – at what point do, does you get that first sense of relief? I mean, how does the interview go, and when do you get that stamp on your passport that says "Welcome to the United States"? Well, as soon as I'm past uh, uh, customs, I'm now through the border, and the first thing I did, you know, I just uh, found a place where I could uh, sit down and smoke a cigarette, and then. And I was really tense. I was really tense. So now I had to find a place to stay. And I picked out a, ho uh, a hotel from the Yellow Pages. And that was another point of danger that uh, uh, I should have been caught. You know, just real quick, I wound up in the south side of Chicago, not knowing where I was. It was dark already. So well, No, I, that's not getting caught. That would have been mugged, robbed. You know, <laughs> your well, operation may have come to an end without any intelligence services yeah, involved. And, and, the, and the point being that there was, I, I wouldn't have known what to do if if they if I'm being mugged or robbed, and I have no no more money because there there were no Soviets in, in Chicago. Mm -hmm. What would I have done? What the heck would I have done? I, I think my my uh, uh, my. I'm thinking what I what I probably might have done is like go to a church and ask for help, you know, mm -hmm. and, and come up with a bogus story. But like you said, anything you anything that you would have had to do like that just would have not that one act in and of itself would have put you in danger or blown your cover. But it it starts it's the accumulation of things, right? It's one thing here, it's a little thing here. Yeah. Pretty soon it starts adding up, doesn't it? Yeah, and again that. And the, the same thing was when when I applied for a U.S. passport, I should have I should have uh, been discovered there as well. <clears throat> so there were a number of danger points where I just got very lucky. You know, this isn't just all competence, but I, I managed to actually <clears throat> react to the dangerous situations I found myself in in a way that I got through. So again, kudos to the two people who evaluated me, Herman and Nikolai. Yeah. Well, but, but see, again, that goes back to it. Sometimes do you need a psychologist or people who have the actual operational experience who knows what it takes in the field to get through, you know? It's a good point. Well, you know, and I can tell you this too, all the traders the United States have, all of them have probably passed psychological evaluation. So not that that uh, is always the best indicator. Um, 
So tell us about the transformation into Jack Barsky now. So now that you've made it in there, you're in Chicago, uh, fortunately not getting mugged. How do you start transforming yourself into Jack Barsky? So, uh, you know, I took a flight uh, to, to, to New York City. That was my, my destination. And Still under days, your cover uh, that you came into the United States on? No, 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 no. I, I changed into Jack Barsky rather quickly when I realized I needed to move out of the, the hotel in, in the south side. And this is where I, I, I created uh, danger to myself because I tried to burn the Canadian passport. And that, that didn't go very well because it created a lot of smoke. And there was a smoke detector that didn't go off. Again, I would have been caught right then. In your there. hotel room? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you burn it? Why not just tear it up into little shreds and flush it down the well, I, I, well, you know, I, pass, passport destruction 101 was not part of my training. <laughs> <laughs> Those little yeah. things, yeah. You know, when, when I realized that, that this that's what thing was smoking, I threw the thing in the toilet and then I shredded it. So, okay. <laughs> There you go. So, but anyway, so yeah, and and then I then I took the birth certificate of, of Jack Barsky out of the secret secret compartment, moved to another hotel, and in those days you could operate in the U.S. if you had cash, you could get on a plane without showing ID. Mm-hmm. So I wound up in New York, uh, found myself a hotel room, and uh, then I had to moved to another hotel room, and then I, uh, I started the process of uh, trying to acquire solid, real U.S. documents, such as a driver's license and a Social Security card. Yeah, and that and, took a long- Jack, I was going to stop you there, too, because that's important, because you talk about getting the passport later. To get to the passport, if you do other things first, it makes it much easier to get the passport, right? But, I mean, it's like, but what yeah, was... No. Go ahead. And then the plan was the plan that they had was brilliant. Eventually, to get a passport and then travel to say Switzerland and and establish a company where they would and they would would funnel lots of money into that company so that I could go back to the United States, reasonably wealthy, and become a really dangerous agent because you know with you have money you don't have to you you don't have to tell anybody how you got the money or you make up a story. And you're now upper upper middle class, and you could be, you know, join a country club where you meet some interesting people. That plan was brilliant. Well, <clears throat> it, it already it already almost failed for me to even get a, a driver's license because they said, "Well, you just get a you get yourself uh, a, a library card that is proof of uh, residence. You need a to, for a driver's license. You need a birth certificate and proof of residence." Well. When I went to the library and asked them for a, a, a library card, they asked me for for documentation. Well, you know, pr- can, can you show? Can you prove who you are? And 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 the birth certificate was not acceptable. So it took me several months to come up with a with a solution for this. And eventually, I found it uh, and, and started out with a membership car- card of the. Museum of Natural History that that was nice nice looking it was official and had my address my hotel address on it and that's when I got my library card. Who would knew it was harder to get a library card than wow. a driver's yeah. license? Yeah, you know they 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 just didn't have a clue and and again they knew I I, I would be able to improvise eventually and I did and the social security card was uh, difficult because I had to go. 
for an interview at the Social Security office. And that's, if I remember right, from the story, from the book and the other stuff, that was one of the potential traps for you, right, was this interview. Another one, yes, uh, because it, it was it was possible to get the Social Security number uh, at an, uh, as a mature adult in those days. There were two uh, <clears throat> parts of the population that were exempt from Social Security. There was farm workers and uh, <clears throat> employees of religious organizations, churches, and so forth. <clears throat> so my backstory, we had me spend a lot of time on a farm. And then I came to New York and, you know, and the interview went very well. But I also had changed my appearance. You know, I, I rubbed soap into my eyes to make them look, you know, not, not as bright. Uh, I, I didn't comb. I hadn't shaved for a couple of days. And I wore a T-shirt that was a little bit uh, not clean, some stains. So I walked in like a country bumpkin. Well, you're describing Murphy right now. <laughs> What's the problem here? I don't understand. What's the problem? I wash my T-shirt once a week. <laughs> anyway, so the interview was very short. You know, she asked me, so you, 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 you never had a social security number? I said, no, why not? Well, I didn't need one. What did you do? Did you work? Yeah, I did. What? You know, I worked on Miller's Farm up, upstate New York. Okay, done. And now I'm in. Now I have to get a job, right? And again, where the KGB had no clue how, how, how to get a job without having had any background in the U.S. Couldn't take my, you know, couldn't apply for a job as a scientist, right? <laughs> hey, I have a um, chemistry degree, but it's unfortunately you got to get the transcript from East Germany. Um, <laughs> Good hey, luck. Let me ask you a question, though, right here at this point. You've done all of this stuff to get to New York. So my big question, too, because when I was listening to it, especially I, I loved listening to the podcast interview because that way you get to tell stories. But what you go through all of this and you think, yeah, you talked about going, you know, to being a, having a company and uh, a Swiss company and having all this money. But what was the end game? In other words, what were you in the United States to do? Well, and this is again, it comes as a surprise, and it came as a surprise to me as well. I never knew. And again, this uh, this <clears throat> came out of the interview with Vadim uh, uh, Kirpichenko. The most important thing that they ascribed to the existence of illegals in the United States was our existence here. Okay? I was never told that. But you, you probably remember that, you know, at the height of the Cold War, there was this, this back and forth between the KGB and the CIA, and there was a lot of uh, mutual, you know, kicking out other agents and sometimes a handful of them, and then a re retaliation. So the, <clears throat> the concern was that uh, the, the diplomatic relations would be severed altogether. And then who would they have had to run Hansen and Ames? Ames, yeah. And again, not a hint of that. What they told me <clears throat> was that uh, I... <clears throat> My, my number one priority was to uh, get close to uh, people who work in the State Department, uh, you know, foreign policy, 
or <clears throat> at least influencers such as, <clears throat> I'm sorry, they mentioned uh, like a couple of uh, um, t think tanks like the Hudson Institute, they were very much interested in the Trilateral Commission. Trilateral Commission, yeah. And uh, also uh, Columbia University, where Jaczynski taught. Because um, I'm going to ask you about something, too. Um, you talked about who was going to manage, uh, who's going to handle Ames, who's going to handle Hansen, because I read his book, Victor Cherkishin. Did you ever get a chance to meet Victor Cherkishin, the KBG agent who uh, uh, was handled both of them? No. That would be an interesting book if you could uh, send me the... The, the title and the, the name of the author, I need to read that for sure. I, I tell you, it was very interesting because the reason I say that is you talked about what would happen if they got kicked out, right? What would happen if we cut diplomatic ties? You needed to have a presence in the U.S. Aldrich James, at the time you were in the United States, he, at that time, the biggest trader as we didn't know about to the United States. But you had a po potentially a tie-in to that, right? To where maybe one of the operational runs you did, I think it was yeah. up to Ver yeah. Vermont, may have been in support of Ames. So, yeah, that was uh, uh, my last visit to Moscow. That was, was 1986. Uh, a, a fellow who I had never, uh, I'd never met uh, came uh, – with, it was introduced by my liaison, and he <clears throat> asked me <clears throat> something that was never asked before, whether I would be willing to do something that would put me at a higher risk than I was already in. And I said, sure, why not? <clears throat> so I was tasked to find a spot for a dead drop in New Hampshire where something of size, like uh, maybe a suitcase could be deposited and, and exchanged. So um, in hindsight, I'm guessing this would have been Ames because Ames was exposed he was by still active during interacting that time. with a diplomat, right? Yeah. And um, I, I did find a spot. I, I, sent, I sent the description back to the center and nothing ever happened. So they probably dropped the whole idea. How did you figure out, though, that that may – how did you figure out that that may have been related to Ames? Because certainly you weren't told at the time because that, that – No, but, but, but what, what for? You know, the, 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 the dead drops that uh, I was involved in, the biggest item that was handed uh, to me was a passport for traveling back to Moscow. So – there was no need to to say, well, it needs to be someplace out of the way, and uh, and and it, it sh you should be able to exchange something sizable. What would that have been? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, cash. Good point. <laughs> no, not not even enough. I think a, a, bu a bunch of documents. Yeah. It, it, it's just like logical thinking. I, I may be wrong, but I can't. I couldn't come up with a, another explanation. Wow! So I just uh, through the magic of Al Gore's amazing internet, I just emailed you the link to that book. So uh, when you check your email later, Jack, you'll have it. Uh, but I mean, it, that that's actually a great read because it does get into. You know, the one thing I, you, as you know, too, you have to study your adversary. You, you can't never underestimate your adversaries. You have to study them. And there's a great story in there about how Victor Turkishin 
instructed Aldra James on how to beat a polygraph because one of the things they were concerned about, he would come in for a polygraph and they were going to ask him if he had had any contact with a known KGB officer. Yeah. So, well, he was already meeting him. He was already passing secrets. Uh, they were using a diplomat as a useful idiot, as Stalin would call him. You know, the guy had no idea what was going on, but but they said, well, though, here's how we solve this. So they arranged to have a meeting that Ames bumped into Turkishin, and then what does he do? He goes back and files a contact report. So now on the polygraph, he can truthfully state he has had contact with a KGB officer. Their problem was they never drilled down far enough to say, have you had, other than this, have you had contact or have you had unauthorized contact with a KGB officer? And the one thing I said, uh, you don't want to, you, do, you have to give your adversaries props, you know, when they do stuff well. And the one thing I, a student of history and watching what Russia does, it's to your point, the thinking of the long game, they're thinking not a year out or two years out, they're thinking five years out. 10 years out, the same way we were talking about China. That's As you tell your story, that's the impressive thing is I'm looking at all the pieces they're putting into place, not knowing if they're going to be there, but they've spent years now just on you alone, getting you into one place in the United States. And I tell you, long game, this is is interesting. Again, hindsight, uh, I was told that my my assignment would be about 10 years. Well, the 10-year mark passed. And there was no hint that they were calling me back, would, would, would be calling me back. I think I was way too valuable to go back home until they got spooked and thought, you know, the FBI was on my tail. So let's talk about that for a second, because, you know, people can read your book to get into a lot of the personal stuff about family and stuff. I wanted to focus really on tradecraft, the operations and what you did. But with you being in the United States, like I said, after a while, it like familiarity breeds contempt. You go, oh, you know, nothing's really happening. You kind of get into your work. You're doing your job uh, right at an insurance company, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was a, a, a programmer uh, at an insurance company all that time, for sure. Right. What did was When was the first time you worried about your own personal safety that you thought, I mean, a lot of people get, you know, Murph, you know, I've talked about this too. You're on surveillance and you go, I've been blown. I've been blown only to realize mm-hmm. the person, you, you, you were never, never were. blown. You just kept right. thinking that. But when is the first time you recall getting, I don't want to say parano- paranoid enough, but to think, hey, the FBI is on to me. The counterintelligence people are on my tail. Well, okay. There, there was a situation where there was a break in into my apartment. And and uh, a, a stereo equipment was stolen. And so obviously I had to be concerned. And what I did, you know, I did, you know, counter surveillance and there was no sign. The reason that this uh, helped me uh, determine that I, this was a break in is because I was told I was the best student in Moscow with regard to counter-surveillance. Every practice route I did where I was either being followed or not being followed, <clears throat> I always was right. And I, 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 it was a contest between the best surveillance team and me, and I beat them every time. So, so that helped me uh, <clears throat> determine that uh, this was a break-in. And the other thing is I was taught how to uh, uh, find out whether my mail was being opened. <clears throat> So you take an envelope, you, you put some little message, take an envelope, and when you glue it, you leave about one inch unglued. And this is what they told me. 
So you, you now mail this from a, some address, a, a big apartment building, and when it comes back to you, you open this thing, and if, the, if, if this is fully glued, that means some, some machine glued it back together. Yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> One more thing. I had a couple of uh, um, measures in my apartment that I checked every time when I came back from work. I placed my shortwave radio at a certain distance from the edge of the table. And I had a, a, a chest of drawers where one of the drawers had sort of an overhang that you couldn't know whether it was read that it was closed all the, all the way or not, unless you went below it and see, oh, wait a minute, it's not quite closed. And, and I left this eight millimeters open and that was routine. I checked it. That wasn't touched. So when I went back to Moscow and I told them that there was a break and they were like really concerned, they said, maybe you should, we, you shouldn't go back. And I told them, yeah, I'm not finished. I'm going to try to get a passport, you know, I, I just like I couldn't fail. So, um, uh, and they, they trusted me and I was right. So that was the first time. The second time was more serious when I received the danger signal. It was a, a red dot on a, support beam for the for the subway and that meant get out of the country don't ask any questions don't even go back home how don't often take- and that was part of your communications plan right how often did you check for that contact signal or danger signal or meet signal it was on my way to work so it, it was every every day pretty much but it was routine you know i always looked at it and i never expected anything and one day there it was and uh sorry <clears throat> but i have to be truthful this, the only thought that came into my head was shit. <clears throat> and I kept on going back to work. Why? Because I wasn't prepared to go. Because, uh, And this is uh, where the LOV E word comes into play. I, I had an 18-month-old girl daughter, beautiful girl, and I had watched her grow up. I lived with her mother, who I had married, who I, who became a citizen because I, because I, <clears throat> I helped her get the green card and and become a citizen, and so she was a, <laughs> so so I was married and lived the you know the married life with this beautiful child, and the one thing that I was trying to figure out, I was going to go back eventually. I think I figured, how do I take care of this girl because mom had only four years of of, of schooling. She would have grown up in poverty if I leave. <clears throat> so I, I wasn't ready to make that decision. So I went to work. I couldn't really do anything, but immediately I started counter surveillance. I started all the measures that uh, that that, I, uh, that that were was it were at my disposal to figure out whether something is bad. Now, after that signal. This was on a Monday. On, on Thursday, that was my re- regular scheduled radio transmission. That's when they told me, you need to leave. Emergency, the FBI. We have reasons to believe the FBI, the FBI is about to arrest you. So, okay, so, uh, you know, whatever measures I could take, and I went back and forth. I, I, I honestly... I, I, the same way when I made the decision how to join the KGB, I was with this 
you know, 50-50, but, you know, this wasn't 50-50. My rational thinking is you got to go. You got to go. Even even if you stay, if you're arrested, you don't, you, you're not, you're not doing the, the, the girl any favors. So this was very emotional. And this is how I make the decision. And so and for, before um, the, the decision point came, they actually broke the rule because I did not, you know, when they, when they, they, they now send uh, radio transmissions every day and they, and I didn't respond. I was supposed to, uh, acknowledge that I had received a radio transmission with a signal someplace. And I didn't do that. I was silent. So they didn't know I could be sick or, you know, whatever I could, could have died. So they sent one of the agents to, uh, contact me. And that's, a, that was against the rules by the way. But you know, that they, they broke the, 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 that rule. And he, he approached me on a subway platform early in the morning. They, they knew my, my way to work. I had to tell him that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when a second famous sentence uh, was uttered in my life and where he whispered into my ear, says that you got to come home or else you're dead. Wow. As a psychiatrist would say, and how did that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I chose to ignore this because he spoke with a heavy Russian accent and he probably used the wrong word. You should have used busted or something like that. I just like, I could not get into a negative thinking mode. I was, because everything that happened to me in my life up to that point, I, I was pretty successful. So I couldn't imagine being caught by the FBI even though I had to take it seriously and I had to take the dead word seriously. So in the next radiogram, they uh, uh, called me to a dead drop operation where they were going to hand over a passport and money to get out of the country. So I went to that operation, not knowing what I was going to decide, but at least I would collect the money, right? Hey, um, Jack, too, the re- this is all happening in New York, in and around New York, right? Yeah. So, and the reason I'm thinking of that, too, the reason you got approached, right, because the other thing, uh, just so people realize, too, in New York is also the United Nations, which creates a diplomatic right. presence so that these folks can operate and come Absolutely. contact you. Absolutely. There, there would be uh, Soviet embassy uh, dipl- uh, dip- uh, diplomats as well as United Nations employees that, uh, that were, some of whom were KGB, probably a lot of them. <clears throat> so, so I went to the dead drop operation, and uncharacteristically, uh, they scheduled that for night time in a park in Staten Island. And I, that was a spot that I found described. It was very easy to find. It was a uh, maybe a couple of hundred feet uh, uh, into the park, uh, a tree stump that was hollowed out at the bottom, and that's where I was going to find a uh, a oil can a crushed oil can and uh, as you know the protocol for a dead drop is there's a signal that's set by the guy by the individual who who places the container in the uh, in the spot saying okay it's there go get it and the signal was there so i go to the spot 
no problem finding it. And there was no oil can. So there was nobody in the park, so I had a flashlight and I went around and like maybe he dropped it uh, accidentally someplace else, nothing. 15 minutes, I walk out. And as I'm walking out of this, this uh, park, my subconscious fed me the decision, says, I'm staying. That was not arrived by logical thinking. And, and nowadays I'm thinking that my subconscious, I'm not really in charge of my own life. It's my subconscious that constantly feeds me stuff that I'm not looking for. So, so yeah, and so uh, <clears throat> I, for the next three months, I took uh, more defensive measures, particularly after I sent them the goodbye letter. I, I sent them my last letter in secret writing. I was, I told them that I'm not coming. And to make it, to avoid my German family uh, being damaged by my decision and for, for them not to come after me. Because one thing I did know that uh, if, 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 if uh, they, that they treated defectors not very nicely. So I wanted to avoid for them to think that I was defecting. So I told them I'm not defecting, I'm not going to betray the... Uh, the East Germany and the Soviet Union, but I can't come because I have HIV AIDS. Now, I didn't know that they were going to buy into that. Um, found out much later that they did. So for the next three months, I made sure that I was not predictably in the same spot at the same time. I went to work, different routes, different times, so forth. Surveillance detection, also checked again if my, my letters were open. None of that. So... After three months, I pretty much knew I was in the clear. And I told my then wife, uh, it's time to think about buying a house. And buying a house and moving, where would you go to? <clears throat> I moved to a northern suburb, suburb uh, just on the other side of, uh, of the Hudson, uh, on, the, on the west side of the Hudson. It's called, called Washingtonville. And uh, that's when I started working on the American Dream. I had not really, uh, well, <clears throat> at that time, the wall had come down already, all right? And so that allowed me, and the internet was functional, and I had, I had computer resources that, that, uh, available. So I did, I did research and said, what happened there? I was as surprised as the CIA and the KGB that, that that wall would come down. That happened so fast, so quickly. But let me ask you, was, but the other thing, too, is we know, too, that when they got into the archives and the Stasi and other things started being exposed, were you concerned that the wall coming down was going to expose you then? No. And again, you know, I, I, I'm not a fearful person, so I... And not so much fear, but I mean, just say it as an operational risk, right? Is that now that the wall's down, is there a risk that you're going to be identified? That that did not cross my mind. In hindsight, uh, the the magazine Der Spiegel went to uh, Stasi archives. There was there was not a trace of me. Because I guarantee you, when the KGB took me over, that whatever uh, records were in the uh, in, in in the East German files were removed. 
Well, and you're, I read part of that Der Spiegel once they translated it, but it was amazing. Some of the stuff that the Stasi had collected, they had collected in jars what they thought were scents and pieces of cloth. If they ever had to track anybody down, they would have got the canines. I mean, yeah. just the archive of stuff that they thought they needed to track people down was just amazing. Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, so again, you know, the, the, these answers that I can give you here now, are, there's a lot of speculation, but I just tell you what uh, what governed my behavior. And after three months, I pretty much wiped out my task with regard to that I used to be a spy. I, I put this in a, in a compartment in my brain that I isolated very much and didn't want to access ever again. Which and then, we and know then, that's not going to be the case, right? Because at some point, <laughs> that's the reason we're having this discussion today. You wrote a book. Yeah. Well, at some point, um, the FBI does get on your tail. So let's talk about, uh, you know, what I would refer to as the beginning of the end, you know, yeah. where things start. How, now that you look back in retrospect, how does the FBI get onto you? Well, it was uh, the fellow named Vasily Mitrokin who betrayed me. He was an archivist in the KGB archives, particularly uh, the first directorate, and he had, he had access. I mean, I don't know why they that, – that, that was a security breach within the KGB. Was he the one that was turned down, though, originally by the U.S.? He yes, was, he was. Yeah. Yeah, he showed up at, uh, at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and told them what he had, and they, they ignored it. There's, there, you know, there was a junior person who uh, uh, received him, and he de he decided that uh, uh, this this was a dangle, and I don't know if he even reported it at the time. But eventually, uh, Mitrokin went to uh, MI6 in one of the Baltic states. And you know, I think that was some of the holdover of Angleton, uh, 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 James Angleton, because of that paranoia that everybody was, you know, for a while there when he was running it. I know they got rid of it, but everybody was a dangle. Everybody's, you know, working yeah. against us, right? But but here's a guy because the one the one thing that struck me about that is when you think archivist, you think oh. But the Russians kept records on everything. I mean, there there was paperwork for everything. Yeah, you know, and I indication that the KGB was a huge bureaucracy was the fact that I had to submit an expense report. Expense every reports. Here, I just bribed so and so. Here's my expense report. Yeah, and and you know, in the expense reports, you know, in secret writing, I I you know, I was limited to two pieces of paper. For, for one letter in secret writing, an expense report took up valuable real estate. And given the fact that they spent millions of rubles training me and running me, the, by, by comparison, the expenses that I reported on were in the hundreds. Bureaucracy taking over, you know, and I, I, I understand that, you know, I have friends who, more friends than, than uh, who are ex-CIA, ex-FBI, and they're complaining about the bureaucracy. I don't know what the CIA was like, but uh, you know, bureaucrats like are like mushrooms after a, a hot summer rain. They, they just come up and, and they infiltrate every organization. <laughs> Murphy, does any of this sound familiar? Oh, yeah. That's the one thing you don't miss in retirement is all the bureaucracy. But, but when we talk about Mushrooms. We always talk about how you keep them in the dark and feed them shit. 
<laughs> Maybe that's what you do to illegals as well as bureaucrats. Uh, Maybe. So, but so the archivist. So, how long does it take? Like, say, we're looking in retrospect, but how long does it take from the time um, when MI six gets a hold of this information until you're put into jeopardy to where the FBI gets onto you? How long of a time frame was that? Uh, that was about uh, seven years, roughly. So for seven years, I mean, at what point into when you say, hey, I'm, I'm not defecting, but I'm walking away. I'm no longer, you know, on the job. Um, how long did it take you to get comfortable as that I pulled it off? I'm going to be Jack Barsky. Nobody's going to know who I am. I'm going to be able to live and die here. Yeah, there, there was after the three months and even more so when I was able to move into my first house, which was roughly one year after I resigned. <clears throat> And this, this, I, I lived like a normal American life, and you know, and we had another child. And uh, I knew I would never be, never see Germany again. I would not. Uh, I, I had uh, given up the idea of applying for a passport again. Did your wife know who you were? Not at all. No. Not so, at that point. Not at that point, right? But but that's what I'm saying. But part of the, you know. It's living a lie, which, you know, what part of that's what spying is and espionage. It's living a lie. So, but you're comfortable living this lie now because now you're out of the spotlight. You know, you're in, like you say, living the American dream. Um, and so what are you doing for work at this point? You know, just, you know, what are you doing to make the American dream work? I was a pretty good programmer and I made good money. And and uh, then I, I was bumped up into management. <coughs> And uh, I did pretty well in management too, and and I I got more and more uh, responsible positions, including chief information officer of a company that uh, is today and was then the the largest independent energy producer in the in the country, and a co-owner of a nuclear plant, and I I was still operating under my under my false, uh, false doc, no, no, and under the illegally obtained documents. And I was able to visit that nuclear plant. And eventually I wound up in a, at a, at an organization that runs the electric grid, uh, a particular electric grid in the United States. I'm not going to name the company because I'm on a non-disclosure there. So <clears throat> I was, I was really clean. But in, in, those, in those days, I, I was already under the protection of the FBI. I wasn't just fully legalized. That's a no point. But, but the FBI introduced themselves nine years after my resignation. How did, that, how did they introduce themselves? Well, it was very elaborate. Uh, they had a whole team. Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so, so they knew that uh, I commuted from, um, from Newark, New Jersey to uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. And I had to cross the Delaware Bridge, <clears throat> toll bridge. And they rented themselves, it was not a guy in disguise, they rented themselves a uh, state trooper. And as I'm going through the toll gate there, he, he waved me to the side and uh, came over to my vehicle. And I rolled down the window, he says, uh, uh, routine traffic step stop please step out of the vehicle now at that point it didn't click routine traffic stop you don't step out of the vehicle but it just did <clears throat> and uh, 
as I'm stepping out there, there's a fellow coming from my right. And these are like the moments that you will never forget. And as I'm turning to him, he flipped open uh, this ID and without even having to read it, I knew the gig's up. I knew it was FBI and he said, FBI, we would like to have a talk with you. <clears throat> Please step into this car. There was a car parked uh, and there was a fellow in the vehicle in the back seat who had a gun strapped to his ankle. I think it was visible on purpose because now I knew this was serious shit. <laughs> yeah, but so let's take that for a second. You weren't arrested. It's not like they like they did when they arrested Ames or Hanson, you know, throw right. you down, put cuffs on you. You were right. I mean, you were going to be detained no matter. But what so at that point what goes through your mind? In other words, do you think about how do I get out of this or who who turned me in or who betrayed me? What's what is, what are you thinking now? No, no, I didn't. I didn't go back that way. Uh, but and I, when I when I had collected my thoughts, uh, I asked the question. I said, "Am I under arrest?" And uh, the there was one word answer: no. So then my subconscious again uh, took over because it knew that I need to be likable. So I made a little joke. I said, what took you so long? And uh, that, that uh, uh, I, I, I saw the guy sitting next to me, like not, I wasn't able to suppress a little smile. And then the fellow who drove the car, the one who introduced himself, he turned around quickly and said, Jack, I want to tell you, this may not be the worst day in your life. Nope, there were no promises made, no nothing. They took me to a, to a, a, a motel. And they had, and I found that out afterwards, the hotel, the motel is L-shaped, uh, right, right, right next to the Delaware Water Gap. And, and they, they had rented one wing of, of that motel and there were armed guards at both ends. Okay. And eventually I found out they also had a whole team uh, in waiting uh, because they had planned, if everything went well, to let me go back home. But in case they miscalculated that I might actually run after all, uh, they, they had a team there and, and they told me that if you think, if you think, and when they let me go, if you think you can run, we have every intersection covered here. So it was a massive operation. Um, and they found out pretty quickly that it wasn't necessary because the next rendezvous we had, I showed up. So from a, just from a standpoint of looking at all the effort that went into it, at some point you got to, I mean, I don't, does the ego play into a little bit that you must be a big fish because of all of this effort they're going through? No. See, the thing is, uh, I intellectually now I'm sort of there uh, with regard to big fish, you know, having read uh, the Kirpichenko and, and, and what they went through to select people like me. And then I'm get, and, and getting a lot of feedback from, you know, I have a friend who, who used to do counterintelligence uh, in the FBI, and he is very familiar with uh, illegal cases. 
and he would state and, uh, that uh, I'm the only one who actually had operational tasks. Everybody else was just here to live here. So, so intellectually, I, I have to sort of embrace this, but, but emotionally, I did what I had to do emotionally. And it's what is much more important to me now is, uh, is, is having become a really good human being and having, and having seen the light and having been able to make this change, uh, to, to now <clears throat> be sort of the Humpty Dumpty that was put together and had, and had the chance to uh, figure out who he is, right? Uh, I, I can't, arrogance is, is stupidity, okay? Because I, I met a lot of people who are smarter than me. I met a lot of people who have, who have talents when I'm saying, oh my God, I wish I could do that. And, and when I start thinking about the universe, I know I'm like this small. So for me to, to be arrogant about who I was as some kind of an elite person, so what? It's stupid. And you know, I give you uh, um, one more thing about this. I uh, gave a presentation at the National Mensa Conven Convention several months ago. And uh, they gave me a free test. And I qualified, and they invited me to join Mensa. And between you and me, and and uh, I wouldn't say this to a Mensa member, but uh, you you would have to pay me a lot of money to join an organization that is proud of something that did not help create. It's my my functioning brain got me where I'm at today, right? And that was given to me at birth. End of story. So. What what was your decision now to say? Do you cooperate? Do you not cooperate? Uh, you know what what let what led you to the point? Because at some point, like you say, if you get rolled up, they want to debrief you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I there was no doubt in my mind I would cooperate, and I told them right off the bat. I said, you know, <clears throat> uh, and, and and at that point, I had already become sort of <clears throat> at least intellectually. And obviously, based on the standard of living and the fact that I had a family, you know, I, my ideology had become consumerism. So I felt good about my life. I loved my children. <clears throat> my wife was still good looking in those days. <clears throat> Couldn't Sorry. see yourself going back to communism at this point, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I had clearly had become an anti-communist because I was able to find out all the lies that we were fed in those days. And including that Vladimir Lenin was uh, a, a selfless uh, revolutionary. Not true. You know, he, he wasn't a power. And he was, he, he, he told, you know, he, he invented the Red Terror. And you know what that is, you know, killing enemies of the revolution and, and whoever else you want to kill. No, no. So anyway, <clears throat> so I, I, there was no doubt in my mind I would cooperate. And when we sat down in the motel, I, I started the conversation. I said, uh, I know one thing, that the only way uh, my family and I <coughs> can get out of the situation with the least amount of damage is if I cooperate fully, and, and I'm uh, 100% willing to do so. But you also had another issue, though. You were in the country illegally under an illegal 
illegally obtained birth certificate, you technically yeah. weren't a U.S. citizen. So that's part of the calculation, right? Is how do you become, because this is part of the something that, you know, the FBI does or helps get for you, right? But how do you become a quote U.S. citizen legally? Okay. So, so that conversation did not take place. I was never promised anything. So for a period of like five, six weeks, uh, when I met with, uh, uh, the, the lead agent who, who debriefed me as thoroughly as you can debrief anybody. Then I had to pass a lie detector test. Once I passed that test, I was finally told there's a way, there's a path to citizenship. You're allowed to stay here. It's going to take a while, but uh, rest assured, we're going to get you there. Now, that took uh, quite a while. And again, there was a bureaucratic element involved in that. <clears throat> so they, what, the, what the FBI managed to uh, give me was a, uh, a new driver's license so that so that uh you know the records would show that you know jack barsky got the driver's license uh, and uh <clears throat> but they had to for me to uh, become a citizen there had to be a document created that showed that jack barsky entered the united states right and there was no documentation of my entry. So eventually, and, and it took him a while to figure that one, one out. And eventually, the fellow who was my liaison at the time found the only person at FBI headquarters who knew how to do it. So <clears throat> they took me into a car, drove me across the border with Canada, turned around, and I got this like piece of paper. It's a document that says Jack Barsky entered the United States on this day. And that they used to get me the driver's license <clears throat> and then to get the pass passport, the, the U.S. passport uh, and citizenship, uh, bureaucracy set in again. So uh, the, the FBI decided that I should go the regular path. And that means nothing behind the scenes, just like apply. And then eventually, you know, you'd be called in, be sworn in. Officially, so I was called in for an interview, and the person who interviewed me asked me, "Are you still a German citizen?" I said, "I don't know." So what he did, and this is like I reconstructed, but that's the way it would have happened. He took my application and put it on the uh, <clears throat> to be investigated pile, and that pile disappeared someplace. The FBI didn't know where it was. It took three years for for them to finally find the application, and then I got a call from Homeland Security to show up at the at the office the next day, and they apologized, and I was sworn in right then and there. Wow! Now, were these folks <laughs> unwitting, as they say, unwitting accomplices? Did the the people at the passport control where you went for the interview did they know? who you were at that time, or was this all, was this, they were just treating you as any other citizen or any other person coming in, you know, wanting to get citizenship? They only knew that I was born in Germany. Okay. And they, they, they didn't, they weren't briefed about my background. Uh, so, and, you know, if, if the FBI had done this, you know, through the back door, it wouldn't have been a problem, but they just figured, you know, I should do it the official way. So, you know. Yeah. 
Well, because the other thing, too, is that gets then your wife at the time, right, their children, that gets them all legal status, so you don't have to worry about them. Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, there's so many different places we could go through, but mm-hmm. but let's go back to what you said at the beginning, because now I, I want to talk about this for a little bit because of your unique perspective. I'm very concerned about the indoctrination of some of these kids. We see what's going on now with Israel and Hamas between Russia and Ukraine, China, Taiwan, but it, it's really, I'm seeing some of the same things that were happening to you back then during communism, the education and the indoctrination, becoming to believe something, you were kind of starting to talk about a cautionary tale. So let's revisit that for a little bit. What's the cautionary tale the United States ought to be worried about right now? Cautionary tale is that uh, we now, I think we have two two generations of of American citizens, young people, who uh, went through a school system that doesn't uh, teach how to think anymore. And let, let me tell you, uh, I had a, uh, I was on a Zoom session with a couple of guys, uh, and we, they were all wondering how how come the the uh, the, the Hamas the the story about the Palestinians being always victims and the Hamas is freedom fighters, how come people believe it? And and I and I told them, yeah, this is this is because. The damage has been done internally by ourselves because 20 years ago, that kind of story would have been rejected by the majority of Americans because they would have had some background about history, geography, and they would have been able to think independently. There's one thing that I found (coughs) when I came here that right early on when I had some exposure to the American education system, and I uh, and I noticed that okay, so most of the tests are, are multiple choice and true and false. So the focus was always on teaching facts, not so much thinking. And believe it or not, other than the brainwashing with regard to communism in East Germany, we were taught thinking. Fifty percent of my high school curriculum was math and science. So and 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 this. I don't even know how to fix this uh, because uh, the the teachers' union is is far out there. On, I'm sorry, I'm getting political, but I can't help myself. It's far out on the left, and uh, there's many many teachers who who have been brainwashed themselves, and they're as I said before, they are very very smart people in this country who who believe in stories and who don't validate the stories the same way I believed in communism. The only difference here is there are other opinions available, but we shut ourselves down because we, you know, we don't want to, you know, we want to keep the psychological equilibrium that we have created for ourselves. And most people have a real big problem to be um, confronted with the real truth and be shown that they, that they have, had beliefs that were totally wrong. I I can give you uh, the comparison between, let's say, my friend who worked for the Stasi and myself. I had the luxury of decontaminating slowly and find out this truth step by step. He did not. When that wall came down, he was he had two choices with regard to how to react embrace the, the the fact that he was working for an organization 
that was evil and and lied to him or become a victim and still stick to his beliefs. And uh, he might not be deep red, but he's still pink. He could not, he could not digest that. It's, it's the psychology of, 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 of not being able to deal with the truth. Same thing happened when, when Germany uh, lost the war. You know, uh, my grandparents never once spoke about the Nazi uh, part of their life. And, and the people that, uh, that found out about the, uh, the Holocaust, there were a lot of people who, could, could, who denied it. And there's, there's deniers to this day. So, and this, this is the danger that we're in, in in this country right now, that, that, uh, that uh, what is in, in a lot of people's mind is gonna be very, very difficult to change. The, we should make the effort. The truth shall be, prevail, hopefully. If it doesn't, this would be the end of the Western world. And it isn't just the United States. No, no. And, yeah. you know, there's a help of Germany as well. There's there's this crap going around on TikTok right now where these people have rediscovered Osama bin Laden's letter. Yeah. And now they're, oh, he was right. The Jews are the problem. I mean, I just get so, I know you didn't want to get political, but. We don't want to get political, but at some point, this is the difference between right and wrong. This is the difference between good and evil. And how – because I, I quit saying how can people believe that, and I start looking. I said, well, I'll tell you how they can believe it to exactly your point. We have generation after generation now that's been indoctrinated, not educated, but indoctrinated. And now you, they, they will go out and they'll ask these kids, well, point to Israel on a map. Point to Gaza on a map. Nobody knows where it is, but they're up in arms. And they're yeah. reading Osama bin Laden's letter going, oh, look, he said it too. It's the Jews who are the problem. Well, And, and then uh, Barack Obama at least hinting that uh, Gaza was occupied by Israel. That's a lie. There has not been a Jewish military presence or official presence in Gaza since 2005, but you wouldn't know that by listening to the news. Yep. And, and the, 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 other, the other thing that Israel stole— the, uh, the land from the Palestinians. Well, if anybody stole it, it was the United Nations unanimously. In 1947, yeah. Um, well, look, Jack, I know we could go a lot of places, and like I said, there's a lot of things about your history, um, but the biggest thing, if you folks want to listen to more about this, just go to Jack Barsky, B-A-R-S-K-Y, jackbarsky.com, which, by the way, is his official and legal name now. No worries about that. You, you can find him. It will, it will not, it doesn't say Jack Barsky, A-K-A, um, yeah, but, but one thing I got to tell you, <clears throat> I have two birthdays. So my 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 birthday was uh, no, November thirteenth. <coughs> Which that, one, that, the Jack one or your real one? That's the Jack Barsky birthday. Okay. The German was born in in May. The the reason that uh, we we got the November we kept the November birthday is because when I was made legal by 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 the uh, by the FBI, <clears throat> um, we couldn't ha have me. We couldn't have Jack Barsky's birth date because he was born in 1944. And if I kept that, I would have been able to collect Social Security five years prior to my real age. 
And that would have meant the FBI <clears throat> would have helped me commit a crime. So we decided to just change the birth year. It's those little things that kept you yeah. up to you. <laughs> Not to make a fuss. So, so but, <clears throat> but interestingly, my, my daughter, who knew my real birthday, once came into my office, interrupted the staff meeting, and wished me happy birthday. And I was really lucky that, <laughs> that they... None of them knew my birthday. I wouldn't talk about it. But if they had, one of them had known. Wait a minute. This is this is May. You're born in November. What's wrong here? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let's finish up um, because we've kept you for quite a while too. But let's finish up. Uh, I want to talk about the first time you officially admitted out loud in public your back, your background, your real background, and how that was received. All right, that, that actually was in Germany. Uh, that was uh, Der Spiegel got, got the scoop. But in the United States, in English, it was a 60 Minutes interview, which is available, by the way, now on YouTube. Yeah, that's that's where I found it. And and that was like sending shockwaves. How did that, you know, how did that affect uh, a lot of the people that you had worked with, that you had known? Well... There were a couple of companies, uh, this interview uh, aired on Sunday, there were a couple of companies where not much work was done on Monday. (laughs) Why? Uh, Interestingly enough, there was no anger coming at me other than from the board of directors of the company I I was employed by at that time. And we... Eventually, after negotiating back and forth, we decided to part company in an amicable kind of manner. But uh, in all my public appearances, and I do a lot of public speaking, I have had literally only one person stand up and saying something hostile and angry. Simply because they understand that, that that I did what I did not for money. Not out of ego, because I thought I served the right cause, and and I saw the error of my ways, and uh, and wound up joining the good guys. Well, you know, very interesting the way you mentioned that. Um, we talked to Jim Lawler about this too, about some of the motivations, and they would use mice, you know, money ideologically, uh, compromise, you know, ego. But I tended to see a lot just, you know, when you go back and read the stories and talk to people like James Olson was head of counterintelligence for CIA for a long time. A lot of the the people that would defect from the Soviet Union or Russia, it was about ideology. Exactly to your point. They discovered the lies. They, they were they, they did not want money. They were still loyal Russians, but they were against communism. They were against, you know, yeah. the, the system. Right. And so I, I think for us, I mean, I'm just talking as an American. When I see somebody like you, if you'd got up and said, hey, I was KGB for even if you'd been my next door neighbor, it would have been one of those things. This is, wow, man, number one, you did good because you fooled me. But number two, uh, welcome to America. You know, I think that's kind of the difference yeah. for me. It would be like we know that you were out there. We know that there were people like you out there and you were good at what you were doing. Um so, you know, hey, but but officially, uh, so what's the official date when you became an American on paper for real? Uh, I would have to look it up on my... Uh, uh, just generally, just about how many years ago? Seven years ago. All right. Well, here's us, me and Murph saying, welcome to America. Bienvenidos. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm glad to, glad to be here. I mean, uh, as I said, um, 
living in this country and, and, and still operating in, in what is mostly still freedom uh, with some limitations, but allowed me to really become myself, allowed me to be an individual uh, and, and allowed me to, uh, you know, be in charge of my own life instead of like being told. I would have, I went, if I had been uh, uh, put in the, we, we had, uh, um, there's a German word pops into my head and I can't translate. We, we had um, a mandatory two-year service in the military after college. I would have made a horrible soldier. Because you're anti-authoritarian. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and most of my, my commanding officers at the low level would have been stupid people. <laughs> I, uh, before you go, well, I, was... I have a choice with whom I interact. Okay, you know, and it's a good thing that I that I left corporate America because I'm not saying that they were all stupid, but but they were not very interesting. You know, talking to people like you or like journalists or artists, I have I have so many friends that are good at what they're doing that I couldn't be doing, and my life became really really interesting. And uh, so uh, I'm. I'm a happy camper uh, with a couple of exceptions, but I don't want to whine about those. One last question for you, Jack. Do you feel any threat towards your life now? No, and we, we discussed this with the FBI when, when uh, I told them about the 60 Minutes uh, uh, proposal. And we both agreed, uh, as long as I'm in, in the Western world, uh, my the danger to me is not zero, but very minimal for two reasons. A, I did not betray the motherland. We, that we take very seriously in Russia. I, I was a German, right? And B, my case is old. And if there's anybody who might have had a personal animus towards me, there were, with one exception, that was my my liaison in Moscow, who was same age, they're all most likely not with us anymore. So, and you guys know that it is not easy, even for the elite uh, uh, <clears throat> GRU, to um, carry out an assassination on the on the territory of another country. Even even their top team that went after Skripal. They, they got yeah they got nailed and I'll tell you who they got nailed by. Um, there is a unit inside New Scotland Yard and they're they basically what they're very good at is they're connectors. They can watch lots and lots of video and put things together and that's so. Even then, you look at Israeli though Israel Israeli Mossad going into uh, uh, an Arabic country and assassinating somebody. So much video surveillance, so much electronic stuff. Now it's hard to get away with it. But look for you though. Uh, this is us saluting you. First of all, you know what? It, it, again, you don't. We were uh, not that we were the same age, but we were on opposite sides for a long time. But you always have to respect a worthy adversary because if you don't, you end up being beaten by that adversary because you underestimated them. You let your ego get to it. So, no, you're, you're right. But like to, to summarize this up, you know the, the those teams that they may have in, in, in Russian intelligence, there were there are a few, and if they have, and if, if Vladimir Putin has a list, and I'm on that list, I'm at the bottom. Well, that's assuming Vladimir Putin is still alive and his body devils aren't out there uh, doing his work for him right now. <laughs> oh, don't go there. Because, uh, there, may be, there may be another body double walking around 
someplace in, in another country. Well, well, look, Steve, any final thoughts before we close this up? I, you know, it's just uh, it, it, this kind of goes – what I'm going to say just kind of goes against what I brought up, was brought up because I was, you know, indoctrinated as a, a patriotic American. But it's it's been an honor to talk to you today, the fact that you're giving us your time to come on the show and, and tell us the intricacies of your life. I mean, you have experienced things that – what ninety nine percent of the of the world would never go through, and and how this all worked out. I you know I read in your back that you became a Christian, and and I'm very proud of you for that. Um, so it has been an honor to sit here and and just get pick your brain, read your book, and I tell everybody read the book Deep Undercover. It's one of those books that's really hard to put down. Allow me a closing comment here. Mm-hmm. You're our guest. Um, because when you say you were indoctrinated, uh, there is no need to indoctrinate somebody to, to the brilliance of the American Constitution. But it's, and it starts with the acknowledgement that not all men are good. And the acknowledgement that very often uh, the, most, the most ruthless and evil people wound up, wind up on the top <clears throat> of a pyramid. And, and the Constitution, uh, the, the, the uh, separation of power, is, is, is the only way to, to, to manage the tendency of <clears throat> organizations becoming pyramids and large organizations eventually that at the top, there is always the potential that an evil dictator emerges. And that doesn't have to be indoctrination. That is based on my observation and logic. Oh, very good. Very Scientifically good. concluded, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's science, folks. It's science. The U.S. Constitution works. Well, hey, look, Jack, again, this is us saluting you. First of all, welcome to America. Um, glad that you're here on our side now. I'm glad that you're continuing to help out folks. Folks, go to his site, jackbarsky.com. Get his book, Deep Undercover. My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. I'm telling you, you don't want to put it down. Uh, it's great reading. So thank you. You guys don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. Everybody else, hang on for the debrief. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, think about this. You you leave your home country, you go to another country, you're working for a an intelligence service not of your own country, and then going to yet another country and the biggest adversary of art at that time for the Soviet Union, you know, the KGB, the United States of America. I mean, mm-hmm. just what he went through, a smart guy and everything else, but, you know, it, it's amazing what the amount of effort the Soviet Union, the Russians went through to identify indoctrinate, cultivate, train, you know, and position him for nobody knows what would have happened, right? But he was in place as as a sleeper, you know? Yeah. You know, and five years of training to do this, I mean, just think about that. You don't even go to college for that long. You get your, your bachelor's degree. Well, you, you haven't know? met some of the people I know. <laughs> well, I, I might have gone a little longer than four years, but, <laughs> but you you get my point here, right? And it's and then even, he'll even, as he said, there were still things that they didn't anticipate that almost tripped him up once he got here to the United States or even when he was in Canada. So it's... Um, Holy cow! You you know you see this on movies, but you just always wonder: Is this real? Do they really do stuff like that? And I think Jack just proved absolutely they do that. They're always looking to infiltrate our country and knock us down. 
Well, and and a lot of his story was the inspiration, and you know, helped uh, craft the uh, story. Uh, I think it was on A and E, but called the Americans. You know, about the two mm-hmm. Russian illegals that were here. And I mean, this this is you know, think about that. This is e- even he mentioned because we we talked later. I think I talked before about Anna Chapman, some of the other GRU illegals, the other folks. But it's not the same way it was. The caliber of people now are not the same, I believe, as the caliber of people during the Cold War. The people like the Jim Lawlers and the Rick Pratos and the people who were there. I mean, when when you were working what was called a denied area, mm-hmm. I mean, that was tough to operate. That's like going into an area and everybody, the KGB, you know, they're all trailing you, watching you, and you've still got to figure out how to do your job. So. It's just, I tell you what, I'm just sitting here thinking, <laughs> this is just another one of the unbelievable guests we've had on Game of Crimes. You know, I, I read a, a, a social media post just this morning where a lady had um, heard Mike Martinez's interview. Mike's the San Diego police officer who was involved in four shootings, three of them involved deaths. And that was within just the first couple of years of his job. But what he went through, and, and she was just in awe of Mike, what he had done, that he was willing to be transparent, open, and, you know, tell his whole story. And then she ends up like, great job, Murph and Morgan. You guys have the best guests. And we do. I mean, I'm, and I'm not bragging. I'm just, I'm shocked that we can get these people. But you folks aren't going to believe who we got coming up later. It's, I mean, we're lining people up now. We still got a list of potentially 50, 60 people to interview a lot of you listeners send in suggestions to us, and we try to follow up on those. So please keep sending those in. But uh, we're going to do our best to knock your socks off in 2024. And we've got a great guest we're going to lead off 2024 with. And we've got another person you have seen. I guarantee you, if you if you are into cop shows at all, the guest we have coming up, going to be a familiar name. But we're going to save that till next week. So anyway, yep. we hope you guys enjoyed that episode. If you did, again, head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know what you think about it. It's magic. We don't know how it works. It's Disney. It's David Copperfield, David Blaine. Pick your favorite favorite street music or magician. It all works. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. Pick up Jack's book. Go to JackBarsky.com and pick up his book, Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. Him and Boris and Natasha were uh, operating illegally in the United States. So, uh, But also follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, head on over to Facebook and make sure you type in Game of Crimes fans. Uh, our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, will determine whether or not you are worthy as she wields her iron fist with the velvet glove. But also hit us up on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got some great reviews that are coming up. We've got some fun things that are going to come up in December. And uh, we just, we do, we put, we put a lot of content that we don't put out on our free podcast. There's a lot of content there. Some of it's serious. A lot of it's fun, but you're going to enjoy it nonetheless. Right, Murph? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you don't, you know what? Let us know. I mean, we Morgan and I love doing what we're doing here. We're we're getting to talk to all these law enforcement heroes around the world. If there's something that you don't like, it's okay to let us know that. We can have differences of opinion, uh, and we want to listen to our listeners. And we, those of you that say Morgan interrupts too much, we've heard you. I talk to him all the time. It goes running one ear and out the other. So you know, what can I do? But uh, and I even mentioned there that uh, you talked. Somebody talked about complained about us name dropping. Well. We name drop one of our guests because that's how you build rapport. Anyway, we're still open to those comments. Those folks are still our friends. So let us know what you think, please. Well, you know, the king and I hate name droppers. That's all I can say, you know. (laughs) The king. (laughs) (laughs) Well, until next week, comrades. 
good and bad, everybody, thank you once again for playing biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all from Russia, like Sean Connery, you know, from Russia with love, the Game of Crimes. See y'all next week.